Well, thank you. I've got to say, I think one of the uh, one of the really great transitions we've been going through has been the arrival of rosehip hibiscus tea up the back. Praise God for that. Uh, let's pray as we come to think about that passage that was just read. Father, we ask that you be with us now, that you would speak to us and give us the grace of growing as your people by the power of your spirit and in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, it's been a running joke uh, for the last few months for my family that I've finally grown up. And that's because in the last eight months or so, I have um, finished study, got a full-time job, turned 30, become a father and bought a house. Uh, it's been kind of fairly hectic. Uh, but the funny thing has been the bizarre way in which I've, I've suddenly ticked all these cultural kind of boxes. I've suddenly been able to fit into this cultural pigeonhole labelled adult, at least to some people. Now, it's been easy to feel a bit satisfied about this, actually. <laughs> Good old me. But it's all, of course, complete nonsense. Uh, these things don't actually make you more mature at all. They just make you more tired and distracted. Um, but it's been amusing to observe the way in which, for better or worse, we have this kind of picture of what a, a grown-up life looks like. I wonder if we've got the same kind of thing for the Christian life. I wonder if we've got a kind of picture of what a mature Christian life looks like, a Christian life that has grown up. What does that look like? Now, I think very often we don't really have an answer. We don't really know what it looks like to be mature as a Christian, or at least maturing in the Christian faith. Now, part of the reason for this, of course, is that we don't want to indulge in silly stereotypes and, and kind of constricting ideas uh, as if there's a, a one-size-fits-all version of Christianity. That, that doesn't do anybody good. It just makes people uncomfortable, and we don't want to do that. Yet it is actually quite important, isn't it, to have a sense of what Christian maturity looks like. It's much more important than knowing what it is to be an adult. For those of us who've been a Christian, been Christians for a while, it's important because it's kind of supposed to be where we're at or where we're getting to. So we should know where it is. For people who are just young Christians, it's important for them because they want a sense of kind of where they're probably headed. And for people who are inquiring into the Christian faith, it's important that we're able to give them a sense of what, what it might look like to keep going, what they might be getting themselves into. And yet, even though it's important, uh, I'm not sure we do have a very clear picture. We have a better sense, I think, of what the earlier stages of Christian life look like. We, we know what it looks like for people to become Christians and then maybe to get established in their faith and to grow quickly into this, this new life. Um, many of us will have seen that happen. Many of us will have seen people become Christians uh, and get grounded like that. It's an exciting time. Uh, it was exciting for me. I've been a Christian as long as I can remember. But in the first few years after high school, I, I just kind of grew up in my faith really quickly. I got established. Um, it, was, it was beautiful for me. And, and so we kind of know what that looks like. But I'm not sure we always know what comes after that, where we go from there, what, what the next stages look like. 
And I think what, we, what this can do is kind of end us up with a picture of the Christian life that looks like step one, get converted. Step two, get established. Step three, avoid stuff-ups for the rest of your life as much as you can. It's not a very kind of inspiring goal, that bit. Now, this is obviously a bigger question than one sermon can deal with. But I think the passage before us this evening, this second section from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, I think it can help us with a way forward. Because what we see here is Paul praying for his readers, not because there's some problem, but praying for them as Christians. Have a look at verses 15 and 16 of Ephesians chapter 1. I think it's page... 1156, is that right? Cool. For this reason, he says, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And then he goes on to say what these prayers are. You see, Paul's prayer comes out of thankfulness, not out of anxiety or frustration. He prays for them not because they're going the wrong way, but because they're going the right way. And, and so what he prays for, for them, can help us with kind of what a positive picture of Christian maturity looks like. So let's together have a look at what he actually prays for. I think it's worth doing. What he prays for is at one level, strikingly simple. He prays for knowledge. Look at verse 17. I keep asking, he says, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. And then in verse 18, he prays again that they will know. I pray also, he says, actually the also there in verse 18, uh, it's not there in the Greek text. Um, And I only mention that because uh, it means that this bit is not an additional prayer. It's an expansion of the previous prayer. It's kind of one prayer in different kind of aspects. But what he prays is that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know. Paul prays that they will know something, someone. Now, what exactly he prays for, we'll get to in a sec, but I just want us to pause on this fact that he prays for knowledge. What kind of knowledge is he asking for? Because, of course, we can know things in different ways. The way in which I know what the capital of Belgium is is different from the way in which I know what a grapefruit tastes like. And both of them are different from the way in which I know my wife. So what kind of knowledge is Paul asking for? Well, the first and most obvious thing is it's the kind of knowledge that God needs to give. Did you see that there? He doesn't actually pray quite for knowledge. He prays that God will give them the spirit so that they will know. And he prays that they will be given light, that is, by God. So this is not the kind of knowledge that we can just go out and find by experience or that we can just put our head down and get from books. God needs to give knowledge. But what kind of knowledge? Well, I think we get a clue in that beautiful phrase in verse 18, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. The eyes of your heart. That's an evocative image, I think. 
Now, its beauty might disappear a bit when I explain it, but so it goes. But the idea, I think, is that the heart, by which Paul means kind of the human center of our conscious life, the the bit in us that chooses and believes and loves, uh, it's not a biology lesson, by the way. It's kind of just a way of thinking about what it is to be human, using images. And the idea is that the heart can see things or not see things. The heart can be alert to realities or to, and to the truth or, or not. And this, I think, is what Paul's getting at with this image. He wants his readers to be focused on and, and awake to certain things at the deepest level of their consciousness. And this helps us see that the kind of knowledge Paul is talking about is the kind of knowledge that goes with love. Paul's not talking about what we call head knowledge, by which we mean knowledge of information without any kind of commitment. No, he's talking about knowledge that has sunk deep into our affections, our loves, into our heart. Now, that doesn't mean it's just feeling without understanding. It's quite clear that Paul means for the brain to be involved. That's why he calls the spirit the spirit of wisdom and understanding. Uh, This knowledge involves understanding, right? It involves getting your head around things. Paul wants his readers to grasp things in their minds. Not that these are especially complicated or difficult things. Paul doesn't say the spirit of genius and intellect. He says the spirit of wisdom and, and, and revelation. But the Christian life, it, it can never be a thoughtless life or a life that's just disinterested in learning. And yet the knowledge is, that Paul is talking about, it goes beyond just understanding in the mind. Paul is talking about a knowledge that gets in more deeply. He wants them to know in the heart, in the place where you find things you love. Let me get at it a bit differently. Have you ever had the experience of sharing with somebody a piece of music or art or a book or a film that you really love and you share it with them and they don't get it? They kind of, oh, yeah, it was pretty good. Yeah. Ah, well, the ending was a bit bit long. And you're like, what? Can can I even be your friend anymore? You know, it just kind of does not connect. Um, Are there any Jane Austen fans here? Big, big fans. Okay, I always love talking to Jane Austen fans, uh, partly because I like Jane Austen a lot as well. Not that much, but a lot. But one of the funny things about Jane Austen fans is that um, often they're so sick of people not getting it, they don't even want to talk about it. They just want to stay and talk to their fan fiction friends. And it shows us that there's a difference, you see, between understanding about something, knowing about something, knowing kind of getting, getting something and really getting it. Getting it in a way that, that pulls out your love. That's the kind of thing Paul's talking about here. The kind of deep understanding that leads to and accompanies love. The kind of knowledge that, that holds the gaze of the heart As I've been preparing this sermon, the the image that's come to me to to describe what I mean has been, um, has anybody seen the film Amelie? Okay, some of you have, doesn't matter if you haven't. There's an old guy in it, 
um, the glass man who, whose bones are really fragile and he spends all his days inside painting and repainting replicas of this particular Renoir painting, the same one seen of people by the lake. And he paints it over and over and over again, just trying to get the details right in exquisite detail. His, his, he has this kind of intimate knowledge of this picture, which is just incredibly powerful. It means he sees things that nobody else sees. And in his acquaintance with this picture, love and understanding are just one. They've come together. He is, if I can put it this way, he is gripped by what he knows. Now, he's a weird guy, uh, and we don't want to be like him. But there's an image there, I think, of the kind of knowledge Paul wants. A deep understanding that fuels a deep love. Paul wants his readers not just to know in theory. He wants them to be totally gripped by something. Gripped by what, though? Gripped by what? What is it that Paul wants them to know in this way? Well, God himself. Verse 17, so that you may know him better, Paul says. What's interesting, though, is that Paul expands this in verse 18 and 19 in a particular way. He focuses in on on a couple of particular things. In fact, on aspects of God's grace. Look at it there in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. As I said, this is not an an addition to Paul's prayer. It's an expansion. And what Paul's saying, he, he says, I want you to know God and in particular, I want you to know his grace, his power, and his promise. That's what, that's what he wants them to be gripped by. Now, these are the two things Paul focuses on. Hope, the promise of God, and the power of God. Promise and power. It's interesting that these are the two things he focuses on, isn't it? Why these things? Why the hope, the, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? the incredible future promised to those who trust Jesus, and why the power, the incomparably great power, as Paul puts it. I suspect that it's because these two things are what enables you to keep living the Christian life, to keep yourself going out in love and persevering in faith. Think about what it does when you get hold of these two things. When you really genuinely believe in and are sure of the future hope of the kingdom in all its glory. And when you're confident that God's power is at work in you, even now. It inspires you to live by faith, doesn't it? It helps you love when it's difficult. It helps you hold on when you're under pressure. It helps you be bold when things look impossible. The promise and the power of God. That's what Paul wants his readers to be gripped by. What would it look like for you to be gripped by those things? 
But of course, the mention of power, uh, we can't stop there. We could, it'd be kind of nice to stop there, but the mention of power sends Paul on a, into a kind of explosion. Uh, and he, he, he suddenly has this long explanation of God's power. Um, in the verses that follow, 19 to 23, he says four things about what God's power has done in Jesus. Now, tragically, we don't have time to look at them in great detail, but we need to get a sense of them because they're foundational for the rest of the letter. So first, God's power raised Jesus from the dead. Verse 20, again, the power we're talking about is the power which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Now, just because we know what that means, it doesn't mean we should pass over it. It's incredible. Jesus came back to life. Death defeated. It's not a small thing. Second, though, God's power also exalted Christ to heavenly authority. Verse 20 continues, He raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. This is the significance of the fact that Jesus did not just rise, he ascended into heaven. The language of uh, sitting at God's right hand here is from Psalm 110, which we read before. And it's the image of having the authority of a king. God has made Jesus not just alive, but Lord, and Lord of all things. Verse 21, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Do you get the sense that Paul kind of wants to cover the field? Everything, every authority, he says, is under Jesus. And this is the third thing as well. God has subjected everything to Jesus. God placed all things under his feet, Paul goes on to say. This is again language from the Psalms, and it's an image of being victorious, of enemies defeated, of the battle over. Now, all this talk of powers and authorities might not mean that much to us at first, but that's because I think most of us, most of the time, don't feel oppressed by authorities by powers. Other Christians in the world do, though, and Christians in Ephesus certainly would have. They lived in a culture that was big on appealing to and trying to get on side with powers, whether social, political, or spiritual. There's a big practice of magic. If you look at Paul's ministry in Acts 19 in Ephesus, what happens? There's there's all these encounters with magicians and stuff. They knew what this was about. And the time may well come when we also need to be reminded that every authority has been placed under Jesus' feet, that he is the victorious champion. In fact, perhaps that time is for you now. I don't know all your situations. But times do arise when we feel like we're just being knocked around by bigger forces than we can control. Perhaps you need, do you need to be reminded that all of them are under Jesus' feet? Finally, though, number four, in his power, God gave Jesus to the church as its head. Verse 22, he appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Now, this last bit uh, might be a bit of a surprise. Why are we suddenly talking about the church? Um, 
Actually, the church is a big theme in Ephesians. And as we read it, we're gonna, it's going to come up again and again. And here Paul begins it by emphasizing the incredible significance of the church. Not because of anything particularly about it, but because it's connected to Jesus. It has this incredible head, the Lord of the universe. And because it's connected to him, it's profoundly important as the way in which Christ is present in the world. Now, uh, we're rapidly getting swamped here by some very dense theology. Um, I kind of like this stuff, and some of you may, but we need to stay on target. Uh, And we'll be coming back to much of this later on in Ephesians. For now, though, let me just... Let's just observe what it does for Paul to go through all this stuff at this point. You see, it is a bit of a shift, isn't it? From the prayer to this discussion of what God's power means. It's made me feel like maybe this should have been two sermons. One about Christian maturity and the other about Jesus' exaltation. But in the context, this second half of our passage actually does two things. First... It shows us something else about the knowledge that we've been talking about. It reminds us, I think, that the way to know God's grace, the way to know God, his promise and his power, is to pay attention to where they've actually been revealed. Paul goes to the resurrection of Jesus to show God's power, where where God's power is on display. And so Paul is not advocating a kind of mystical approach to knowing God where we just kind of pray and wait for it to happen. He's pushing us towards knowing the God who has made himself known in Jesus. And so when we hear his prayer, I think it pushes us towards knowing, knowing God by knowing where his power and hope have been displayed. And that, I think, is, if we take this prayer seriously, is eventually going to push us to the Bible to read the Bible, to take it seriously, because that's where God has revealed himself. That's where God has made known his power and and, and the hope. That's where we're going to get a way to access those things. That's the first thing it does. The second thing this stuff about Jesus' exaltation does is it reminds us why wanting what Paul wants makes sense. Because there's something kind of beautiful about what Paul does here, isn't there? It's like he can't stay away from talking about Jesus and what God has done in him. He can't help himself from going back to where he was in the passage we looked at last week, showing them what God has done in Christ. This incredible thing was the reason he started praying for them. Back in verse 15, he says, for this reason, and he goes on, and now he, he falls back into it because he can't help himself but declare this magnificent thing God has done. And this helps us see why the whole thing about knowing God matters. Why what Paul desires makes perfect sense. Why, in a way, it's the most obvious thing in the world. Because the grace that God has showered upon his people, upon us, is astonishingly, impossibly wonderful, a wealth of grace beyond anything we could have hoped for or imagined. How could we not want to know it better? How could we not 
want to understand it more and more and more deeply so that we are utterly gripped by it. When we get what God has done in Christ, we see that Paul's prayer is exactly right. When we catch a glimpse of God's grace, we see that the only thing that makes sense is to want it to fill our whole vision. Well, let's conclude. How should we respond to what we've seen here this evening? Amen, brother. But let me make a couple of comments first. But, I mean, that's where I'm going. But, no, no. Amen. Um, I thought, actually, I could have concluded uh, earlier in the week, I thought I could conclude by making us all feel bad. Um, Feel bad that we aren't there yet, you see. I could ask all sorts of questions like, how well do you know the hope and the power? How much have they got into your heart? And we'd all kind of go, oh, not that much. Oh, I guess, yeah, gee, long way to go. But that's not the point of this passage. Paul doesn't want his readers to feel bad that they're not there yet. He wants them to get hold of this wonderful picture of knowing God in a deeper way so that it becomes something they aspire to. So that they join with him in praying for it and pursuing it. He wants them to see that there is nothing that makes more sense than to aspire to this because of the incredible grace God has shown us in Christ. And so that's where I want us to end this evening as well. We began by wondering what it looked like for somebody to be mature in the Christian life. I hope here we've seen the beginning of an answer. It means being gripped by the promise and power of God. Gripped by the promise and power of God. Gripped, deep understanding, fueling deep knowledge by God's incredible grace. That, I think, is a vision we can aspire to. That's a picture that can inspire us and lead us to pray and to pursue it and to read the scriptures and to want it. What could possibly make any more sense, in fact, given that the truth is, Jesus is alive, sitting at God's right hand, Lord over all things with all his enemies under his feet and given to us as our head. Let me invite you to join with Paul and with me now in praying, for, in praying this for yourself and for all your brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you for this vision of being gripped by your power and promise. And our Father, we pray that you will, you will inspire us to pursue and pray for this vision and that your Spirit would bring it about in our lives, that we would know you in this way. And we pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus, our King, our Leader, and our Hope. Amen.